Deuteronomy chapter 5 this morning, as we are taking an in-depth look at the Ten Commandments, we come now to the Sixth Commandment. We're, we're on the back half, and this is a short commandment. It's only two, two words excuse me, in Hebrew, four words in English, but uh, it says a lot more than that. So, so don't, don't get too excited. It's not going to be a 30-second sermon. Uh, stand with me as we read Deuteronomy chapter 5. Verse 17 this morning, Deuteronomy 5, 17. This is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. He says, you shall not murder. Pray with me. Father, help us to fulfill all of your commandments. Lord, we know we don't have the power and strength of our own. It takes Christ fulfilling the law. And it takes us in Christ to fulfill the law. So, Father, place us in Christ that we may not only know your law, but do it and bring you glory. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Help us in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we've looked at some of the commandments already, the first five. Uh, We've seen the prohibition against having other gods and the prohibition not to make images of God, even the true God. Uh, because images just don't do the trick. Uh, we have we have the prohibition from misappropriating God's name, carrying his name as worthless or in vain. We've also talked about some positive commandments, the commandment to remember the Sabbath day, keeping it holy, and to honor our father and mother. And now we come to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. So we can't kill people. All right, that's it. Okay, let's pray and go home, right? Well, I want to start with just one simple observation about this word murder. Murder is not kill. Those are different. Uh, Kill uh, is just generally taking a life. It doesn't matter whether you mean to or not. It doesn't matter whether it's accidental or on purpose. It doesn't matter even if it's a means of justice that uh, uh, is carried out. It doesn't matter. But murder is specific. Murder is specifically, uh, it does relate to an accidental death in the means of of someone. uh, So, for example, if if the Bible gives an example in Deuteronomy, I think, chapter 19, of if if you're going to work with a friend out in the woods and you're chopping wood and you take the axe and the the head of the axe flies off the handle and hits the other guy and kills him. And there's provision for things like that. That person who, who does that doesn't mean to they have uh, a means of having a fair trial. It was to go to the nearest city of refuge and there the elders of that city would hold a trial to ensure that it truly was an accidental thing and not intentional. And coming to the fact that it's accidental and not intentional, that guy's no longer called a murderer after that. But now he must remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest so that so that the the seriousness of killing someone is maintained even when it's an accident. But for the murderer, for the most part, the murderer is the someone who commits an intentional crime. It's premeditated. There's hatred. There's anger. And so that person acts in violence and in rage and kills someone. It's never used of animals except for one use where a lion murders a person. But it's never... It's never an animal being killed. When when there's a murder in the scripture, it's always a person being murdered. It's never an animal. 
So with those caveats, with those specifics, uh, if your version says thou shalt not kill, just think murder and you'll have the right idea, okay? It says a lot more than those words. First of all, it reveals some things about the character of God. Every commandment does. So what is it about God's nature that makes murder in particular wrong? Well, there's a couple of things here. First, if you look through scripture, you'll see very quickly God is the author of life. Look in Genesis chapter 1. From the very first page of the book, God is authoring life. He's creating everything. He's creating non-living things. The sun and the moon and the stars. The land. The ground coming up out of the water. He creates all of these non-living things in order for the living things to have a place to be. He creates the sky so birds will have a place to fly. He creates the land so animals will have the place to walk. He creates the sea so fish will have a place to swim. He creates all of these non-living things to support all of the life in it. We're told by scientists that, that to get all of the specifications that would be necessary for life, it would be so impossible, so unlikely. I think it's estimated that the chances are like, and, and, and I can't remember the exact figure, I believe it's like one in 10 to the 188th power. I might be wrong on that number. It's crazy unlikely. To get all of the right constraints. Well, just one example. Consider the air. Our air is about 21% oxygen. 21%. You know what the optimal range for life is? 17 to 25. You get more than 25, everything becomes combustible. And you, you want to talk about uh, having a blast. That's, that's having a real blast. You get less than 17, nothing can breathe. There needs to be enough oxygen for people to breathe, but not so much that everything blows up all the time. We're right in that sweet spot, aren't we? But what, what about the rest of the gas? What's the rest of the atmosphere? Well, you need something that isn't going to explode. You need something that's about the same weight as oxygen, so it'll kind of mix up well. You need something that's diatomic, that has two uh, uh, atoms within each molecule. Because if it has more than that, it'll react to stuff too easily. And if it has less than that, it'll react to stuff too easily. So what... About the only thing you can use is this stuff called nitrogen. Guess what 78% of our atmosphere is? Nitrogen. And the other stuff, the other just under 1%, is just other gases that don't really react. Isn't that amazing that our atmosphere just happens to be calibrated in such a way that it, that it does all of these things, that it meets all of these constraints? And these are just a few of the constraints. There's way more. Isn't it amazing that our planet is just the right size to be rocky, but to have a powerful magnetic field? Isn't it interesting that it still happens to be the right space from the sun in that sweet spot where liquid water can stay on the surface, where it doesn't all evaporate out because it's too hot and it doesn't all freeze because it's too cold. God is the author of life. And even in creation, we see his wonderful hand creating everything to sustain life. 
It's amazing to me. Whether it's simple microorganisms that only have one cell, or whether it's the most complex creatures on the planet, God is the one who brings all life into being. Scripture affirms this many other times. Elihu is talking to Job, and he says this, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In fact, the word for spirit and the word for breath are the same word for a reason, because it's God's Spirit that gives life. Several of the Psalms, the psalmist asks God, he, he makes this petition to God to give him life, to spare his life, to save his life. In fact, Psalm 119, the author of that Psalm, says it at least 10 different times that I could find. One of them is Psalm 119.88. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are in the temple. There's a lame man begging for alms. And he asks them for alms. And they say, well, we don't have any money, but we'll give you what we do have. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. The Bible says that while he's even, before he's even completely walking, while he's still kind of clinging, like he's getting up, he's holding on to them. People are already seeing what's happening and they're all starting to rush around. I mean, not every day you're in the temple and you're seeing somebody healed. That's pretty, pretty interesting. Everybody's coming to see what's going on. And in this, in this moment of opportunity, Peter says, you know what, it's a great time to preach a sermon. So he starts to tell them about how Jesus was their Messiah and, and verse 15 of Acts 3, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Jesus, the author of life. Not only that, he's the holder of the keys to death. Look in Revelation chapter 1. John sees this image of the risen Christ. And he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Hades. God's the author of all life. He's the one who holds life and death in his hand. Now, since he's the author of life, it stands to reason that life matters to God. But what makes human life so special? I just said a minute ago that that word murder only applies to people, that it never is used to apply to animals. So why not say, don't murder anything? Don't kill anything? Why make it specifically about people? What is it about people that makes us different? I mean, God created all this stuff. He created cows and chickens, trees and bees, ants and anteaters. So what makes us so special? Genesis 1, 27, look at this verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see it? The image of God in us makes our lives valuable. There is a special value to human life because we bear the Imago Dei, the image of God. Now you know a little bit of Latin. You can impress your friends. Imago Dei, the image of God. God put his image in us. And because God put his image in us, we have value. It's what separates us from everything else. Amoebas, bacteria, orange trees, lilies, variegated liriop. That's one of my favorite plants. Holly bushes. Fungi, salamanders, 
ostriches, hares, catfish, hammerhead sharks, mountain lions, hens, sloths, elephants. None of them are created in God's image, but we are. It's not communication. Other animals do that. It's not cognition. It's not even our status at the top of the food chain that makes us different. It's God's image in us. Now, we are not very good image bearers, but it's still there. And that, by the way, is why murder is prohibited. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 spells this out. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God makes man in his own image. And because God makes man in his own image, we are not to kill, murder one another. And like I said, we, we, we're not very good image bearers. Um, we often look nothing like God. That's what makes Christ so special, isn't it? See, when you look at Jesus, well, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He perfectly bears the image of God. Just as he perfectly bears the name of God. When we talked about the third commandment, we recognize that Jesus Christ bears the name of God, not in vain, but perfectly. He carries it perfectly. In the same way, he carries God's image perfectly. But that image of God in us is what makes us valuable. Whether you are an child that hasn't been born yet, still in your mother's womb, or whether you're an old person that is about to die, or anything in between, you bear the image of God. That, those two things together lead me to a third observation. And that's that only God has the right to give or to take away life. Only God has the right to give life only God has the right to take life. Since life is God's to give, it's his to take. Since it's only God's to give, it's only his to take. Only God has the privilege of determining life's boundaries. Hannah, Samuel's mother, finally has her baby. She has been praying for a long time and finally God has answered her prayers. She sings a song of praise in 1 Samuel 2. Verse 6 says this, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. All throughout the scripture, we see God striking people down. Uriah touches the ark. It's going to fall off the cart. He reaches his hands out to grab it. Instinctively struck down. Sons of Aaron. They go to bring author, unauthorized fire before the Lord. Gone. Strikes him down. The firstborn in Egypt wiped out in one night. Now we were tempted to think that that sounds monstrous. But that doesn't sound like God. But keep in mind something. The wages of sin is death. We deserve it. We deserve to die. Jonathan Edwards says this, the sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads and it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. The fact that God doesn't kill us, the fact that God doesn't, doesn't take us off of this earth at any one moment is because of His mercy, especially those who do not know Him. God shows them mercy. 
And he doesn't have to. He has every right to destroy the wicked any and every moment. There is nothing, Edwards also says, nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. We deserve that justice. And because of Christ's work on the cross and because of the mercy of a holy, righteous, pure, true God is the only reason that he doesn't destroy the wicked right now. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, but we need to keep that in mind. Because sometimes we look at God taking away life like, like it's some sort of tragedy. And sometimes it can be tragic when a small child dies from some disease, some birth defect, or doesn't even make it out of the womb because of a miscarriage. Those are tragedies. But God is not an unjust God. His ways are righteous and just, even when he takes life, because it's his to take in the first place. Now we turn to us. We have God. We see that he's the author of life. We see that his image in us makes our lives valuable, and only he has the right to take away life, just as only he can give it. So what does God expect of us? Well, first, we don't murder pretty obvious, right? We must seek to protect life, not harm it. We have to be actively involved in the protection of life. We shouldn't be murdering, obviously. I don't think, if, if, have any of you uh, murdered someone? Okay. That's usually people think, well, I don't kill anybody, so I'm good on this commandment. But are you actively protecting life? It's a little bit different question, isn't it? God expects us to protect life. We're to defend the helpless and protect the vulnerable, no matter what stage of life they're in. Conception to natural death it means abortion's out of the question. There are some pastors who will not preach that abortion is evil. I'm not one of them. Abortion is evil. Amen. It's a direct violation of this commandment. Amen. So is euthanasia. So is killing someone out of mercy because they're suffering so bad. That's also against the sixth commandment. Amen. But there's something else that I think we need to call attention to, and that's that people live in between conception and death. And if we are going to say that we're pro-life, we cannot say, don't abort the babies, but once they're born, not care anything for them. We can't do that. We don't have that option. Now, the answer might not be government programs for anybody and everybody. That's not what I think the option is. I think the option is for the church to step up and do its job. For us to protect the, health, the, the unhealthy, the, the vulnerable, the needy, the poor, the weak, the oppressed. I think that's our job. As a church, as the big C church, it is our job to show God's love to those who need it. And we have frankly sat out on our tuchuses for too long and not done our job. That's why society's in the condition that it's in. We should be seeking to protect life, not just picketing in front of a courthouse or around an abortion clinic. We should be seeking to protect life by caring for those around us who need it. That leads me to the second thing. We must not be negligent with life. Not only do we not have the option to murder, we don't have the option to sit passively by while someone's life is in danger. 
just as we cannot actively participate in murder, we also cannot passively sit by and let it happen. We must protect life. Now, that includes us. We can't be negligent with us. We have to care for ourselves. Do you know, I heard it quoted one time that about 70% of the time, someone who's taking care of a spouse or a parent who's ill, about 70% of the time, they end up in bad shape because they neglect themselves in the process. Even when we are doing for others, we still have to care for ourselves. That means that when there's depression or anxiety, we need to get help. Easier said than done sometimes. But our life is not ours to take, even though we might feel like it's the only way out. We have to care for ourselves, not only in that sense, but in the health sense. Now, I'm not telling you to go get buff, join CrossFit, and, and have a great six-pack of abs. Too late. I don't know who you're talking about, but it sure ain't me or you. <laughs> but we do need to take care of our bodies, don't we? I'm, fine. I'm learning that the hard way, y'all. I'm learning that the hard way. How do you think that you can be of the best use of God if you don't take care of your body? Now, again, I'm not saying that you have to be like on, on the cover of some fitness magazine. I'm not saying that. But we need to care for ourselves, don't we? Not only do we care for us, we care for others, especially the most needy. I've already talked about it before. Proverbs 31 is kind of interesting. We think of that chapter as the godly woman, right? You know, we, we often uh, think of Proverbs 31, and that's the chapter that's about a godly woman. But the first few verses of that chapter are a mother talking to her son, giving him instructions. Uh, turns out, if you want a godly woman, you've got to be a godly man. Listen to verses 8 and 9 of Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Y'all, there's a lot of folks that are in need. God wants us to stand up and care for them. There's times when we've done that well. There's times when we haven't. Lately, churches have been doing all kinds of different uh, outreach things, ministries, uh, clothing, uh, have, have clothing closets or uh, feeding meals to the hungry, helping out at food banks or running food banks or all kinds of things like that. And those are, those are good things to do. But I don't think this is calling us just to do institutional kind of things like that. I think it's calling us individually. I mean, this is a mother talking to her son. This isn't a mother talking to her church. I think individually we need to be actively involved in caring for those who are in need. That might look different things for different people. But the commandment not to murder is also a commandment not to sit by and let someone's life be destroyed. And I'm not even getting into the evangelistic aspects of that because you know there is an eternal life and an eternal death. And I'm pretty sure God doesn't want us to sit idly by and let people go to that eternal death when we could have very easily told them the way of life. If life's threatened and we're in a position to do something about it, we must protect life.
Another thing, we must not be controlled by anger. You see, a lot of, a lot of murders happen because there's a heart problem before the person pulls the trigger. A lot of murders happen because there's a heart problem before the guy draws his knife. A lot of murders happen because there's a heart problem within us. Jesus hits it directly on, on the head in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The first is obviously the commandment. The second one is a summary of all these different laws that applied to murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It is so important to resolve anger, in fact, that Jesus goes on to tell them to stop what you're doing immediately, even if you're doing holy things. Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, even if you're giving money to the church, and then remember that your brother has something against you. Notice, this is not you have something against your brother. This is when you're at fault. Even if you're giving money to the church, put it down, go make it right with your brother, and then come back and give. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Don't let the anger continue. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You really want to take care of things, you take care of that anger problem quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, I believe James says. Because if you let that anger harden, harden your heart, if you let it harden inside your heart, it will harden your heart. And if you let it harden your heart, then you're going to do actions like murdering. These heart problems always develop into worse problems. Deal with them. As, as the eminent theologian Barney Fife said, nip it in the bud. We cannot allow ourselves to be controlled by anger toward others. This commandment is a call to us to stand and protect life and not allow ourselves to be complacent when others are in danger. That's what it means not to murder. It's not just, well, I didn't kill anybody, so I'm good on this one. It's to fight for life from beginning to end. It's to fight for life no matter how hard it is, no matter how much danger it may pose to you. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, there are not very many people that will stand for life when theirs is threatened. Unfortunately, we know of a few cops in Uvalde, Texas that would not stand for life because theirs might be threatened. That kind of courage is hard to come by, but God calls us to have it anyway. One other thing I'd say about this commandment, if we are serious about protecting life, we need not worry about the consequences. But if we're more worried about the consequences we're going to incur the wrath of God because we're not doing what he's commanded of us. It's a scary thing to face the wrath of men, but it's a terrible thing to face the wrath of God. Don't worry about what the men will do. You serve God. You protect life. 
Father, may we find life as valuable as you do. You, you value it so much. You valued ours so much that you gave up yours. You died on a cross to save us, to give us life. You said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And though you prayed in the garden, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. You also prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Father, sometimes we're going to get a cup that comes to us and it's going to be your will that we drink it. Lord, make us faithful. Help us to honor you as we not only not murder, but protect life. Not only not murder, but not be negligent with life. Not only not murder, but not even allow ourselves to be controlled by anger. Father, help us to do what you've called us to do. No matter what the consequences may be on earth, we know that our faithfulness to you matters more. Strengthen us for the work that you have us to do. In this time of invitation, I know you're leading some of us to do different things. Perhaps there's someone here who doesn't know you and you have been leading them, wooing them in their heart, calling them to follow you. Father, I pray that today would be the day that they would rescue their life from the pit of hell and and trust you with their eternity. Father, I pray that there might be someone today here that has been following you and has been negligent, not carrying out their duties, knowing that you've called them to do something and they haven't responded in obedience. They put it off or they've said maybe later or I'll do it when I get to it or I'll do it when, when it's a better opportunity. Father, I pray today would be the day that they would say yes. Today would be the day that they would follow you. Today would be the day that they would trust you enough to obey your word. Father, there may be someone here who's been following you all their life and there's someone burdening their heart. Lord, I pray today would be the day that they would finally make progress, that they would finally get through, that they would finally show God's love in a way that sticks, that they would finally speak your name in a way that impacts that person for all eternity. Whatever you want us to do, Father, we're yours will obey. You lead. Author of life, give us the life that we need to honor you. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.